us, Lord. Lord, we do praise you for your goodness, the kindness with which you've shown it to us, Lord, the kindness that leads to repentance that you offer us, God. We're so grateful, so grateful that you love us so deeply, that you are connected to us by your Spirit, that we have the the pride of place in the relationship with you, that we can approach your throne, that we can be uh, so close to you, God, through your kindness that led to Jesus, that led to the the way of repentance, the way of life change. And Lord, as we pray uh, right now, would you just be here? Would you be present? We know you are, but would you manifest yourself to us tonight? And Lord, as I speak through uh, these different passages and as we look through uh, this concept of baptism, would we have our hearts renewed about uh, the importance of it, the importance of the act and what it means uh, in the scriptures, God. I pray you'd help me to do justice to this uh, very thing that you yourself underwent and that you call us to undergo as well. And we love you. We pray all these things in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So yes, we're on an interlude for uh, from Genesis tonight. And, um, you know, this came about for a very specific reason. Uh, and the reason is, uh, according to my own theology of, of baptism, what I believe about this, um, my baby should already be baptized. And... Uh, I feel like, as the Lord's been speaking to me, if I want to stay consistent with what I believe, I need them to be baptized. And um, I'll admit, you know, that being out of church for so long, uh, you know, it was always hard for us when we got back into church in Portland uh, that our kids would not have the growing up experience that we had uh, in youth group and that kind of stuff. And that was a, a heart, our heartbreak for us. And, and I will admit, um, and maybe this is just a, a flaw in my own, own heart, you know, maybe it's a little bit of sinfulness in me, but there's this part of me as a dad that just like, I want a million people there celebrating my kids when they're baptized. And I'm not saying that to downplay our community. I love our community. I love Wellspring. Uh, but there's this heartbreak in me that I want everyone to celebrate my kids. And I know we're a small group. Um, but the Lord really convicted me about that and, and reminded me, like, the preciousness of baptism is the family. It's the body being together and celebrating one another. And this is our body. This group is my body. It, it, is, the, it is the body that I'm a part of, this local church. And... Um, and so it would be really precious for me to have my kids um, baptized in this community where everyone here, uh, you know, we don't have a thousand people that have never heard of them before. We have just people here who I know deeply love my kids. So as the Lord uh, worked on my heart about that, and, um, and again, I hope that it's not, I'm not trying to downplay what we have here. I just... From my father heart I, I want everyone to celebrate my kids um, but I thought it would be uh, prudent um, to talk about baptism and to explain why this is pressing to me why it matters to me uh, to baptize my kids and I would like to do it this summer at some point and whether we do that on a Sunday or if we make a special event sometime where we could go somewhere or do something like I haven't really thought through it much um, but I think it would be precious, even if it was something like a kiddie pool out back on the deck or something like that, um, would still be precious to me. Um, and uh, according to my belief, my kids should be baptized. They probably should have been several years ago. And uh, so I just want to share that with you. You know, theologically, baptism is an interesting subject. I, I uh, was going to write my master's thesis on this concept of water and spirit baptism and so i'm going to talk about it tonight uh i will say openly all my pentecostal friends which is a good portion of the people in this room um and i consider myself on the overwhelming whole to be a pentecostal in terms of my theology um 
this is the one place where Pentecostals and I probably just dis disagree is on this concept of water and spirit baptism. So I want to share my view and talk about it in the scriptures, um, and then we can talk about it. This will be much more like a spiritual warfare series than, than Genesis has been, uh, as we're just going to walk through some of these passages. But I thought, uh, to start, I'm just going to tell you, my belief is that uh, when you become a Christian, you should be baptized in water. Um, and, and preferably, the sooner the better. Uh, what it's become in our culture is that it is, uh, what usually the terminology that's used is the next step of discipleship. That's usually the terminology. This is the next, the next step. Um, and so what that means in practice is usually, hey, we have a little kid here, and they've been a Christian for about a decade, and now it's time for them to get baptized, because this is the next step of obedience. Sometimes that terminology is used. Um, which scripturally, I don't find any basis for. And we have what we've done over time, and I know the, the history of it is, uh, I'll explain in just a minute, but the history of it is that we have replaced the idea of baptism with the sinner's prayer. And that's become the focal point of becoming a Christian, is this sinner's prayer. Uh, what's interesting is the sinner's prayer, uh, as, as an act of conversion, meaning, I'm not saying just praying when you're a sinner, I'm not saying that, but that sinner's prayer that we have treated now as the act of conversion uh, is not biblical anywhere. You won't find it in the Bible. Uh, so that is something that we have basically made up as a new right for entering the church. And the reason is, is because when we had tent revivals in the Midwest, in this country, we needed something that didn't require water to get people converted when there was no water around. And sinner's prayer became this way of doing that, this way of, of having a moment or a rite that becomes conversion uh, without baptism. So I'm going to, uh, like I said, my belief is that when someone becomes a Christian, immediately they should be baptized. Or at least, uh, to, like, like Glenn was talking about earlier, the idea that there is a very short window. Like they were, they uh, professed belief in the morning, and that night at church they were baptized, like Glenn was saying. Um, or even if, you know, this is a special moment and you want to have some family there, so you plan it a week or a month or whatever out. That's okay. I'm not trying to be, uh, uh, like, the, the, we have to find some prescription of it. But it should not be the next step of discipleship. It should not be you've been a Christian for 10 years. You've actually stripped baptism of all its meaning by doing that. So we'll walk through this um, a little bit. And I'm going to go uh, through the passages that talk about baptism in the New Testament. Um, we'll go through the narratives first. So if we're going to look for a narrative of Christian baptism, where's the only place we can go in the New Testament to find it? Of Christian baptism. Acts is the only place that records Christian baptisms. Okay, we'll start in Acts 2. I went through and cataloged all the spots where baptism shows up in Acts, which again, the only Christian baptisms are in the book of Acts. Jesus is baptized by John. He's baptized for the baptism of, of repentance, is what they usually term it. Um, that's pre-Christ's death and resurrection. So it's actually not Christian baptism. And we're going to see that come up in Acts specifically. Right? You're going to see that come up when we read through Acts 8 and some of those passages where there's a delineation there. But we'll start here in Acts 2. Uh, Acts 2 is wonderful. Let me, uh, oh, sorry. Let me get up here. Acts 2 is um, where Peter has his great Pentecost sermon, right? In the later half of the chapter, first the Holy Spirit is poured out on them at the beginning of the chapter. They've waited for this empowerment from the, the spirit that was to be given to them. And uh, Peter gives this unbelievable sermon, which I actually think is, if, you're, if you have ever thought about this, if, there's a, if there is a specific gospel presentation that is the paradigm for the gospel, I think it's here, it's Acts 2. Peter's sermon is the paradigm of the gospel. Who Jesus is, how you can receive him, and then what you're supposed to do afterwards. Right? It's great. I'm not going to go through it now, but it's great. But when he finishes his sermon, it says this in Acts 2.37. Now when they heard this, this is all the Jewish people of all the different nations that had come and heard Peter preaching. It says, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart 
And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? They're asking for what should be the sign of this change of heart. What should be the sign of this... Uh, how can they change out of this state where they were, they were uh, companions in crucifying Jesus, Jesus right? Peter says, it was you who, by the hands of godless men, crucified Christ. And now they're, they're just cut to the core. And they say, how can we, how can we get rid of this, this evil that's, that we've done? Well, what's Peter say? What's his response? It's not sinner's prayer. Interestingly enough, he doesn't even say believe. He says, repent and be baptized. Peter said to them, verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the instruction in how to respond to Peter's sermon. Peter lays out this sermon, and the response is, get Repent of your sin and be baptized. Now, there's a, there's a belief theologically that's called baptismal regeneration, regeneration. And, of course, that belief is that the very act of being water baptized is actually what saves you. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that, that's, that the act itself is the very vehicle of salvation. That's not what I'm trying to imply. What I'm trying to imply is that baptism is so connected to becoming a Christian that the scriptures don't understand the idea of a Christian without baptism. The idea of an unbaptized Christian would be asinine to a, an early church believer. They would not understand that concept. So Peter tells them, he says, be baptized, repent and be baptized. So what do they do? It says those who received his word were baptized. And that very day, there were added about 3,000 souls. So immediately, these 3,000 people who received the word of Jesus were baptized that same day. Immediately. Okay, there's our first instance of Christian baptism. All right, let's move to Acts 8. Acts 8 is our next. And this is intriguing. Uh, we'll go to Acts 8, 5. Now Philip, now this is Philip, who's one of the deacons of the church from Acts 6, right? He's one of these guys who's full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit. He goes to the city of Samaria, Samaria and he begins preaching Christ. And it says the crowds are all paying attention to him. Why? He's doing signs. He's driving out unclean spirits. They're leaving. Uh, people who are paralyzed and lame are being healed. There's so much rejoicing. And then it says there's a man named Simon who is a magician. Right? He used to practice magic, and he would astonish everyone because of the power with which he worked magic. Okay? But when people were believing Philip, who was preaching, they were being baptized. They were being baptized, men and women alike. And even Simon himself believed and was baptized. And after being baptized... He went on a journey with Philip. He followed him around because he himself, this worker of magic, was amazed at the power of God, was amazed at what God was doing. So when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them in Samaria, those people in Samaria, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For this Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So then they, Peter and John, began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, what happens next? Simon sees this, and he's like, Hey, I want to be able to give people the Spirit. Let me pay you so you can teach me the secret of giving people the Holy Spirit, because I want to be able to do it. And Peter and John basically say, you don't know God. You do not understand what is going on here. You have no part, verse 21, you have no part 
or portion in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. That's what they say to Simon. And they say, repent. Repent and pray that your heart may be forgiven. The intention of your heart may be forgiven. And then he says, pray for me yourselves. That's the last you hear about Simon. It's just left there, hanging like that. Interesting. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Okay, next is Acts 9, which is the story of Saul becoming Paul. Okay, Acts 9, verse 10. Of course, you have, oops, sorry. You have Ananias coming, and the Lord appears to Ananias and gives him a vision, says, go to this guy, I want to save him. And what does Ananias say? He says, I've heard about this guy. He's the one who's murdering everyone. You really want me to go to him? And the Lord says, absolutely. He is my chosen instrument, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Okay? So he goes. He prays for him. Remember, he's been struck blind at this point. Ananias goes, prays for him, says he's going to regain his sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, these things like scales fall from Paul's eyes. He regains his sight, and he got up and was baptized immediately. He took food and was strengthened. Okay, Acts 10. We were at Saul. Acts 10, back-to-back with Saul, is a story of Cornelius. Another salvation story. Peter gets this vision. It's really weird. It's all this foreign meat he's not supposed to be eating it's not kosher and so the lord says eat and he's like lord i know you're the lord but uh i've never eaten any of this stuff i'm not going to disobey you even though you're telling me to eat i'm not going to disobey you and eat it which is funny so then he goes on he he gets that vision three times and uh he when he he finally he realizes as time goes on that this is about cornelius These men come to Peter and say, hey, our master wants to see you, to hear the story about Jesus. And so Peter goes with them, which he's not supposed to, right, in Jewish culture. He's not supposed to enter the house of a Gentile. That would be to make himself unclean. Okay? So Peter tells them the story. He tells them the story of who Jesus is and what he did. So in 34, this is the sermon. I most certainly understand, this is Peter speaking, now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all, you yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. We are witnesses of all the things he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Raised up on the third day, he became visible to us who were witnesses, and then he ate and drank with us. And he ordered us to preach that he is the one who was appointed as judge. Okay? Of him all the prophets bear witness. And while Peter spoke these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also, for they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And they asked him to stay on for a few days so that they could hear more about Jesus. Okay? Good story. Acts 11. Acts 11. Well, I wanted 46, but there's 16. Uh, this is uh, Peter. He's talking about the experience he just had with Cornelius. He's telling the people in Jerusalem what happened. He said, I remember that the Lord said the Holy Spirit, or sorry, that the word of the Lord, how he used to say that John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God is giving the same gift to um, 
sorry. Therefore, if God is giving to them the same gift as he gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? Right? So these concepts, baptized with water, which we saw, we've seen before in all the Gospels, baptized with water and baptized with the Holy Spirit. Talking about both of them right here. Okay. Acts 16. <clears throat> Acts 16. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, Thyatira, a seller of purple purple fabrics, fabrics, good night. A worshipper of God was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she in her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Again, the Lord opens her heart to respond. What's the response? The response is baptism. Acts, still in 16. I guess I could have just scrolled down. Still in 16, verse 27. Uh, remember that Peter and Silas, I think at this point, or Paul and Silas, excuse me, not Peter. Paul and Silas are imprisoned, and there's this massive earthquake, and they get out, and the jailer's ready to kill himself. Because he thinks, my life is forfeit. Because if, if these prisoners are not here, uh, my life is done for. But when he gets ready to kill himself, Paul and Silas say, no, 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 we're still here. Don't worry, we're still here. So, what does the jailer say? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night, washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized. He and all his household. Okay, we're getting close to the end. Acts 18, verse 8. <clears throat> Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and... Being baptized. Acts 19. 19, 1 to 6. Here we go. Apollos is at Corinth. Paul passed through the country and came to Ephesus, and he found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No. We have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Okay? Last one. Acts 22. Acts 22:12. This is uh, Paul, and he's recounting his own experience of, of what happened with Ananias. Okay? A certain Ananias, a man who was devout by the standard of law and well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me. And standing near, he said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very time, I looked up at him, and he said, The God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one, and to hear in utterance from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Now why do you delay? Get up and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Okay. That's all the narrative acts of baptism we have in the entire Bible. Right? Christian baptism. Right? Every every time that baptism happens, you have now heard. You have heard every one of them. Okay? Now, the letters speak about them. The letters speak about baptism, like giving teaching about it, but there's no narrative of it happening. Okay? Which is different. But every time the scriptures speak of Christian baptism, we've just gone through it. Uh, and, and, again, Christian baptism meaning post-resurrection, post-Jesus ascending to heaven. That would be Christian baptism. <clears throat> um, 
to me, it is so evidently clear from having read all those passages that baptism is tied to salvation. Each passage, get up right here, be baptized, and the act of baptism is... He's talking about washing away your sins in the immersion. He's tying salvation and baptism together. Okay, Same with the, the uh, account in Acts 19. right? They said, what, and into what were you baptized? Well, we've been baptized with John's baptism. So what do they do? They baptize them again in the name of Jesus. And immediately, he lays hands, the Spirit's received. So, what we are missing today as it relates to baptism and here is my here is my theory on it uh, what we have done in our modern culture is taken baptism and said this is a next step of obedience this is the next step and usually that almost always comes out as this way this is your public declaration this is you publicly declaring that you are a christian so that everyone will know that you are a christian and, and while I think that's true, that there is a public declarative part of it, um, that's actually not the main focus of what's going on with baptism. It's, it's not, okay, you've been a Christian for a while, now you want to be serious about it, it's time to be baptized. Baptism itself, you may have never heard this before, but here's my theory. I believe baptism actually is meant scripturally to be the response to the gospel. It is not an act you do after responding. It is actually the act of response. So when the Lord uh, shows you the, the greatness, he reveals the greatness of what he has done for you, how are you meant to respond to show that you believe in it? You're baptized. And if that is what you believe, right? I just laid that out. That's what I believe. Think about the damage that is done to that symbol by waiting a decade before you do it. I believe that baptism is your initiation into the faith. It's meant to be the actual initiation into the faith. And if you wait 10 years after you believed in Jesus, the symbol's lost its power. What does the Bible talk about it being a symbol of? Well, two things primarily. One... Uh, when we get to Romans 6, I'll, I'll get there in a minute. But one is this. We're being baptized into Jesus' death and resurrection. Right? The image of going down in the water is Christ's burial, his death, and coming up out of the water, coming out to new life. That's one of the two major uh, themes of the symbol. Right? The symbol of baptism is going down in death and right, right, uh, rising up to new life. If you've been a Christian for 10 years, that symbol is meaningless. Because the moment of you going to death and life happened 10 years ago. The symbol is meant to be initiation. It's meant to be representative of the experience you're undergoing as you believe. The second is this. And this is where probably my Pentecostal friends and I will differ. The second is this, and, and they'll agree with the symbol, I'm sure, but how I, I play it out. Um, the second is this, the water, what is water consistently used as a symbol of in the New Testament? Almost invariably, water is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Water and spirit are consistently tied in the New Testament, and actually in the Old Testament as well. The spirit is going to be poured out on the dry ground and the earth will drink it up, right? That, that language is used in Isaiah. That the Spirit will be poured out on a dry land. And it will flourish back into life. That's all Spirit language. One of the most consistent symbols of the Spirit is water. <clears throat> and so that's why Jesus, in, in, in John 7, it says it explicitly in John 7. He said, come to me and I will give you a fountain that that wells up within you, springing up to eternal life. And John says explicitly after that, he said this speaking about the Holy Spirit, who had not yet been poured out. John says that in John 7, explicitly. He's tying the symbol of water and spirit. So the second symbol of baptism 
is actually immersion in water, which is the equivalent of being immersed in the Spirit. Immersed in the Spirit. And being immersed in the Spirit is the idea of being baptized into Christ. Who's the one who actually baptizes us into the body of Christ? Well, according to the scriptures, it's the Spirit. And of course, it's an interesting turn. It's an interesting cycle because Jesus is the one who baptizes us in the Spirit. But the Spirit is the one who brings us into the body. It's kind of cyclical. So, <clears throat> my argument is that when people believe, they should get baptized. And where I differ with Pentecostals is that I see water and spirit baptism as initiatory experiences. I think both water and spirit baptism are meant to happen at the same time. They're things that are actually, I think, scripturally are happening at the same time. So, uh, I'll give you the two biggest arguments against my, my, my theory, because I like to do justice to a wide range of views, and I like to make sure that you know the evidence that I'm not just giving you the stuff that supports me, okay? Here's the two biggest arguments. One, and this is very valid, the church almost immediately after the period of the scriptures, when the, that period ends, it is extremely early in church history, the church moves to a three-year catechism. A three-year catechism, meaning they had to be taught three years of theology and Bible and all of the rest before they could be baptized. And that is extremely, like I'm talking first 200 years of Christianity, they moved to a three-year catechism. Now, my argument is that, one, it's not scriptural. I think scripture always is the highest example. But there's something valid that the church saw that. And I understand the reason. I get the reason. What they were tired of was people being baptized who weren't really Christians. And that's a fair assessment. I understand that. But scripturally, we just saw that happen with Simon. They baptized him because he professed belief and then turned around and told him, your heart's wicked. They had no qualms. Peter and John had no qualms about baptizing Simon and then being wrong. They weren't like, oh, we've got to undo it or something like that. They just accepted that they baptized him and that he needed to repent and pray to the Lord to forgive the intention of his heart. They were not concerned about undoing the baptism or something. So we have an actual scriptural example where it seems like someone's baptized and doesn't believe, or at least in maybe saving faith. I don't know because the story is so ambiguous at the end, right? It just ends. Hey, pray for me yourselves. So that the Lord would change my, you know, change me. I think that's an example that cuts against the church example. That it's okay if we baptize some people who are not true believers. That's okay. If they profess belief, you need to baptize them. Okay, secondly, uh, the argument of Pentecostalism, and it's a fair argument, is that they see when the spirit and water come up in Acts water baptism and spirit baptism are actually disconnected. They show up separately from one another. So in both Acts 8 and Acts 10, and really Acts 19 as well, that we read with they saying, hey, we've been baptized by John, John's baptism. Um, water and spirit baptism clearly don't happen at the same time. Clearly don't happen at the same time. And that's valid. That's a valid point. Those accounts say that. The thing for me, though, when I interpret those passages, what's unique to me about them is not that water and spirit baptism are separated. It's that they treat it as if something is wrong, that spirit and water baptism are separated. Acts 8. When you come to Acts 8, and Philip is preaching... <clears throat> and they're all being water baptized. What happens after they're water baptized? In my opinion, what happens is they're like, hey, these guys have been water baptized but not spirit baptized. We need to send Peter and John down there to get them spirit baptized. 
because we expected that this would be uniform experience, but it's not. It's not a uniform experience. And then same is true in Acts, 8, Acts 10. I see the same pattern going on. Acts 10 with Cornelius. It seems that something is odd with, with Peter's response to them. It says that they are uh, that they have been, sorry, it says that they have been uh, filled with the Spirit. They've been baptized in the Spirit. And what's Peter's response? His response is, well, if they've been Spirit baptized, who can withhold the water? Who can remove the water? If they have the greater, and clearly Spirit baptism is the greater, no doubt. I don't think anyone would deny that. Spirit baptism is the depth of the reality, the most important part of it. If spirit baptized, if they've been spirit baptized, who are we to say they can't be water baptized? They must be able to. And then what's he do? He sends them down to the water to fix it. Because something is off. That's how I interpret that. That something is off that these two realities have been disconnected. And since these two realities have been disconnected, Peter wants to reconnect them. Because water and spirit are two symbols deeply tied together. Now again, I'm not saying they can't can't happen separately. Clearly they can. We see two accounts here that they can't. I don't think they're meant to happen separately. I think they're both initiatory experiences. Okay. Well, we can have discussion today. Yeah, we will. We'll talk about it at the end because I want to I want to get to all your okay, questions. Now, and, and let me just say one more thing because I think this I want you to know this just about me personally because I, I I want my again my Pentecostal friends in the in the crowd to hear this about me. Um <laughs> This is important to me uh, because so many people speak ill of what Pentecostals believe in the theological world around this issue um, from a place of not being a Pentecostal or not really having thought through their reality. I just want to make it clear that I am speaking from this, I am speaking on this topic, believing what I believe, having experienced genuinely what Pentecostals would say is spirit baptism. What they would describe spirit baptism as, the, the Lord coming down upon you, the Holy Spirit filling you, and then speaking in tongues, I've had that experience. So I am not speaking from a place where I disbelieve the experience. I'm speaking a theological reality that I believe from the scriptures. So I'll come back to that at the end and explain my, my theological view of that experience I had. Because I don't believe it's illegitimate. That's one thing. Many people who disagree with Pentecostals will say, well, their experiences are fabricated. Their experiences are fake. In fact, their experiences might even be demonic. I've heard all of that. I am not saying any of that. Okay, I want to make that clear. I am not saying any of that. And I will explain my experience of having been, what I, I will tell you later, what I call filled with the Spirit and, um, and speaking in tongues. I'll talk about that. So but, you're talking about baptized of the Holy Spirit. You aren't talking about speaking in tongues right now. I'm not. You're talking infilling of the Holy Spirit. I'm talking about what, what many people would call indwelling, okay. the indwelling of the Spirit, okay. which I believe is what the Bible means when it says Spirit baptism. When it uses that terminology, baptized by the Spirit, it's talking about the initial experience of the Spirit dwelling, indwelling you. That's my belief on it. Okay? So, uh, I only have a few more passages and we can talk. Um, we'll just go to the epistles now. So we've seen all the narrative, and the epistles are interesting because, they again, they speak of it, but re again, relatively rarely. This is not a topic that comes up too often. Um, I'm going to have a question for you before we get to Romans 6. Romans 6 is one of the most well-known passages about baptism. It's really significant for the theology of baptism. Here's my question for you before we read Romans 6. I want you to tell me, is Romans 6 speaking about water baptism or spirit baptism? Which, it, which is it? Water baptism or spirit baptism? It must be one of them. If you believe they're separate experiences, it has to be one or the other. Okay. Paul is giving his argument about being saved, and he gets on this baptism uh, piece, right? About salvation. He says, Do you not know, this is verse 3 of Romans 6, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. 
For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Okay. Is he talking about spirit baptism or water baptism in that passage? Do you think water? You, you think because of the imagery? Okay. Sure. Anyone else think the same or different? What do you think? And when you go into the water, you go down. That death? Yeah. I've been baptized before. Yeah, Lathan. Yes. And one of the pastors said, did he baptize you? Yeah, and he That's wanted cool. to hold me down a long time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sure he was joking Lathan. <laughs> yeah. Just wanted to share that. Thanks, Lathan. What do you think? You think it's spirit or water? Shereen, th- Shereen thinks water. Water. You think water too? The imagery that he's talking with makes it sound like it's the water baptism. He's baptized into his death and then being raised from the dead. Anyone think spirit? Well, because then it also talks so that we shall be um, in the likeness of his resurrection. So that would be more of a spiritual. Part. It's a very spiritual reality, isn't it? Yeah. In fact, in Romans 8, Paul's going to say, Who resurrects us into the image of Jesus? Well, the Spirit does. If the Spirit of Him who was raised from the dead is in you, you shall also be raised like Him. So maybe it's both. Yeah, maybe it's both. I think it's intentionally ambiguous. There's other scriptures about, like, um, like, Jesus being baptized into His death. I think the passage is intentionally ambiguous because Paul means both. When he uses the word baptism, he connects water and spirit anyway. He doesn't have to delineate because when he thinks baptism, he connects the rite of water baptism with the idea of spirit baptism, that both are happening. And and really, in my opinion, when you read this, you can kind of see that. Like you said, the imagery is very much about the water baptism piece. And baptism literally just means to be immersed, right? That's what the word trans... The baptism, baptizo, it's really... I was going to ask about that. Like, what is the Greek word? It literally means to be immersed. So they use it for for baptized prior to the idea of... The concept of Christian baptism. Yeah, prior to that... It's actually used for mikvah washing, right? The ceremonial ritual washing that Jewish people would do. Uh, they would immerse their hands, right? They use baptize. Okay, baptize literally just means to immerse or to dip in something, okay, in some kind of liquid, almost almost always, right? <clears throat> but that same imagery is used of the spirit. And why would it be used of the spirit? Why would a word like immersed dip into a liquid be used of the spirit? Well, because the spirit is consistently symbolized by water, in my opinion. Okay, and there are definite scriptural examples of that. So I think he, he I think since he ties him anyway, he doesn't feel any need to delineate. The imagery is very much water, but these realities aren't happening in the water; they're happening in the spirit. Clearly, being dipped in water does not bring you into Christ's death. We know that for a fact. You're not brought into Christ's death every time you take a bath. The Spirit is doing the work. So we know that even though this may be talking about water baptism, the rite in the imagery, the realities are happening in the Spirit. Okay, next. We'll go to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians. We'll start at 10. Yeah, we'll go to 10. 1 Corinthians 10. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses, 
in the cloud and in the sea. What's that sound like, being baptized into the sea? Sounds like water baptism. What's Paul's application of the water baptism of being baptized into Moses? Well, he immediately turns to a spiritual reality. And all of our fathers ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. See all the imagery of water throughout the whole thing? But he's not talking about that they were actually drinking water. He's talking about them drinking of the Spirit. Drinking from Christ. Of this spiritual reality that was happening when they passed through the Red Sea. They were baptized into the sea. He says so. The water part. But it was a spiritual reality behind that. Because they were drinking a spiritual drink from a spiritual rock, which was Christ himself. He's tying the two. This is still Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians. Okay? 1 Corinthians 12. If you know 1 Corinthians 12, what's it, what's it about to go about? Spiritual gifts. These are the great chapters on spiritual gifts. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. It's all about spiritual gifts. And here in the spiritual gifts section, he says this in 12.13. For by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Why drink? Again, spirit symbolized as water. We're made to drink of the spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. We were all baptized into one body. So here's the other part. Uh, and and I, if you are an old-time Pentecostal, I'm sure many of you know that this, this reality, where it's been, it's been done bad uh, for Pentecostals. And I'm not saying that there, there are good Pentecostals who don't do this, but I know that there have been bad Pentecostals who do do this. And one thing that this verse, I think, condemns is the idea that you'd have a two-tier system of Christianity. Those who have not been spirit baptized and those who have. Right? With Pentecostalism uh, distinguishing water baptism and spirit baptism, what would happen in, in many old-time Pentecostal churches is you'd have Christians, people who had received Jesus, but had not been spirit baptized. And they were really second-class Christians. They really were second-rate. They hadn't really gotten the real deal. If they really were Christians, they'd get the spirit baptized. And I know a lot of people, a lot of families that were devastated by that. That they felt their faith, like they, they were never good enough because they had not received this second level, the second, the next level of Christianity. Um, I was raised in the Pentecostal church that kind of believed Yeah, I, I understand that. And they were wonderful people, I'm not saying that. Well, they can be wonderful people with bad <laughs> theology. But that's probably true. Um, and this says it's one spirit who baptized all into one body. So regardless if this is second work or whatever you may believe about spirit baptism, uh, the initiatory piece where you're indwelt with the spirit, all are baptized into the same body. Whether, you, whether you've received the second work or not, if that's what you believe theologically. Okay. I'm going to do one more verse. You've probably never heard this before, because I've never heard it before except for me, so I think I made it up. Um, I, I, I'm not joking. I have never heard anyone other than myself say this, uh, but I think it's the correct interpretation of Matthew 28. Okay, Matthew 28. You have heard this passage so many times. So many times. I have yet to have someone answer this question satisfactorily to me who does not agree with me. And I, I don't have anyone who agrees with me, so there we go. Because like I said, I'm the only person who I've heard say this. Okay. <clears throat> Matthew 28, 19 and 20. This passage is what? It's the Great Commission. The Lord's giving his final instructions to his disciples. And he says this. Go therefore... And make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them 
in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Okay, here's my question. If baptism is the step of obedience, if it's the next step, if it's just the public declaration and not the response, why does Jesus distinguish baptizing them from just teaching them to observe everything I commanded you? Why is baptism not just included under the idea of teaching everything I commanded you? Because Jesus commanded people to be baptized. So why doesn't he just say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you? What's the baptizing part for in this passage? Why does he delineate it? Why do you think? Why is there a separate, a separate phrase here for baptizing? Why doesn't he just say, hey, by the way, remind everyone to obey everything that I command, which includes baptism, of course. Well, the first, the biggest thing he's saying is make disciples. True. Before he's, before he's saying, as by making disciples, you are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's that's, but making disciples is the big command. Making disciples, typically how it's understood is making disciples, is fulfilled in baptizing and teaching. Mm -hmm. right. It still doesn't explain why they're, they're separated. With the common Why Why even mention baptism? Why not just say, teach them to observe all that I commanded you? Which he taught to teach oh. baptism. But he taught because to because he wanted to I emphasize think. it. Emphasize okay. that he wanted them to be back. To back why? Why not any? Why not anything else? Why didn't he emphasize don't murder people or don't commit adultery or any other of the commands? Why specifically baptism? Was it cultural then? Did they were they baptized into other things that weren't Christian? Just Judaism. Okay, maybe it's, it's the the counterpart to bat, becoming making them become Jewish, baptizing them in a Jew. Maybe it's the fulfilled counterpart to that, baptizing them in, now, me, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, hmm. not just Judaism. Maybe. Okay. Maybe. I still don't see how that wouldn't still be fulfilled with just teaching them to observe all that I command. There's some reason Jesus specifies baptism separate from everything else. Okay. Yeah, well, what do you think? What's, <laughs> your, what's your... What's your... Uh, I want to hear Tyler got one, one, one more. At this point, Jesus' resurrection is done, and he's telling them to baptize people to to have them be filled with the Spirit, which isn't necessarily part of his teaching, necessarily, because now the Spirit is poured out on the world because he's been crucified and resurrected. And okay. So that the baptism is, is the pouring out of the Spirit, and then teaching them to observe all the that he commanded is separate from that. So you would say with what you're saying it sounds like baptizing is not the same as just teaching them to observe all that I commanded. This is not just another commandment to follow, to be baptized. Yeah. Would you agree with that assessment or not? Or do you think it's just another uh, it's just another command that God gives to be baptized? No, I think, it, I think it is more about the pouring out of the Spirit at this point. I mean, he, his, his teaching, has, he taught about baptism, didn't he? I mean, he got baptized by John. And he never teaches about baptism, ever. I guess maybe not directly teaching Yeah, he doesn't have any direct like words about teaching about it. There's accounts people. of him being baptized, yeah. Yeah. And actually, there's accounts of his disciples baptizing too in John, right? Not him. It specifies, not yeah, Jesus. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you my interpretation, Shirley, since you're so intrigued. <laughs> I think he separates it because he's specifically saying that this is not a commandment to observe. This is actually your response to the gospel. So making disciples, it consists of two things. Getting people to respond to the gospel in baptism... Once they have responded to the gospel, then you can teach them to obey all the commandments. Pre-baptism, they can't obey the commandments. They're not Christians. Baptizing is being separated because this is the response. 
that he expects people to respond to the gospel. So when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, what's he first saying? You've got to get people to respond to the gospel, to become, to become disciples. If they don't respond to the gospel, they can't be disciples. Surely you said the most important part is making disciples. Mm-hmm. Well, if no one responds, they can't be disciples. And I think he separates baptism because without the response, they can't be taught to observe all the commandments. In fact, they're not even empowered Right. to keep all the commandments right. because they have not been baptized. And why? Well, because baptism represents salvation itself. If people are not getting saved, they cannot be taught the commandments to obey. Baptism itself is the initial experience of responding to the gospel. That's how I interpret this passage. Give me one second, Lee, then I'll, I'll let you say your thing. Uh, that's how I interpret this. I think it's specifically delineated by Christ because he says this act, this rite, is so important because this is literally how people are called to respond to me. This is literally the thing people are supposed to do to say they believe in me. This act, being baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, is literally the act that shows they've responded to the gospel. So it's a sign of repentance? It's a, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it's a sign of repentance. It's a sign that you're connecting yourself to Jesus, too. It's a sign that you're being immersed in the Spirit. It's a sign of all kinds of things. Really deep, important realities. But what do all those realities they represent have in common? It's the moment of conversion. It's the moment that you're initially saved. That first moment. That's the, that's the defining thread of baptism. That first moment. And so in my opinion, Jesus separates this here to say that. You've got to get people to respond to the message, and then you can teach them all that I've commanded them. And don't worry, I'm always with you. But people need to be baptized to be saved. And I don't, again, I'm not saying baptismal regeneration. I'm not saying the act itself saves you. But baptism's meant to be the response. So now you've heard my belief, you can hear how damaging I must think the way we do baptism is now. We have stripped it of all its power. We've stripped it of seeing the act. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe this is just me. Maybe this isn't you. But I legitimately feel that when I watch people, I've had moments where I've watched people be baptized, and it is the most powerful, significant rite that you just feel God there. There is power in that moment. And the power is directly related to the fact that these are these are new souls being added to the church. We've done a huge disservice to water baptism by replacing it with something and treating it like it's unimportant. And you'll see that is why I treat baptism with such respect and such honor and why I, I don't believe in things like rebaptism. I don't believe in things like... Um, now, it, it, again, I'm actually not a stickler. If someone really feels like the Lord is telling them they need to do it, I'd probably do it. But I would probably try and talk them out of it first. If they were if they were serious about it and the Lord was I'm like, no, no. I feel that this is what the Lord... I would do it. But I would probably try and talk them out of it first. Because this... The symbol of it is that, that God has you. You've been connected to Him through His Spirit. And I... I I actually think I actually think one of the beautiful things about baptism is you have these little kids who will be baptized and, and to be fair I get it many of them especially in the south where it's just a way of life it's cultural and they maybe been baptized and they really didn't have any belief they just heard some stories or whatever I get that I understand that but one of the beautiful thing about a little kid who has belief and really believes in Jesus being baptized, and then maybe they walked away, and they spent their teenage years and their 20s just totally rebellious. One of the beautiful things is that baptism is still a symbol of God holding on to them. And when they come back and they repent, and they're like, I'm so foolish, I've recommitted my life. Well, that baptism you had as a kid is a reminder, it's a symbol of the fact that God was with you that whole time. And he did not let you go. Rebaptism is like what? What you just gonna be rebaptized every time you recommit? Why? The Lord's been with you the whole time. 
watching you in your rebellion like the prodigal son hugging you, running to you when you come back. But the baptism actually holds weight as a reminder of who God is to a little kid, even. I had professors at at, at, uh, Western who literally said they would never baptize someone under 12 because they couldn't actually confirm that they were believers. I was like, that's horrifying. Absolutely. And you know what? If kids can't believe because they may not have a certain level of knowledge, I'll tell you what, most adults can't be baptized then because they don't believe at the right level of theology either. If someone believes the act of baptism is meant to be their response. And my babies, they're believers. I need them to be baptized. I want our family to be a part of it. This family see my babies be baptized because they believe in Jesus that's what it requires and they should be baptized okay one last thing I'm going to say and then we can open up all the discussion Uh, my experience I told you I had the experience of the speaking in tongues of the Lord coming upon me and, and speaking in tongues I had that I think I was 16 I had that moment I think there is language for that in the Bible, but I'm going to think of it differently than Pentecostals, traditionally Pentecostals, uh, think of it. I think of it like Ephesians 5.18, where he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. <clears throat> I think that language of filling with the Spirit, I think that's a reality that can happen in our life over and over and over and over again. And I don't mean just the fact that we're continually being filled. That's true. But I actually think there are many times we have experiences where we have a special, unique moment of filling that sometimes supercharges our sanctification. Maybe we're released of some deep sin. Maybe uh, the Lord empowers us in a specific way for something that we've just never felt the passion that we needed. Maybe it's all kinds of things. I think it's a legitimate experience. And I think Pentecostals, all legitimate, I'm not saying their experiences are, are fake. I'm not saying they're manufactured. I'm not saying they're demonic. I'm saying they're real experiences. But theologically, I think of them differently. I don't think of them as spirit baptism, because I think that's the initial piece. I think of them as this language. They are filled with the Spirit. A real moment that you're having with God where He deeply penetrates your soul and gives you something. But I think those moments we see can over and over in our lives. And, and maybe some people have them more than others, and maybe we only have one, or maybe there's many times. I I don't know. The Lord works differently with different people. I believe that. That's one of the core tenets of my belief, is that the Lord works with people differently. This is not cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all God. Fits in all our boxes. He works how He wants to work with, who He wants to work with. And I believe that about Him. So I am not in any way trying to belittle experience, because I believe these experiences are real. I just, theologically, I see them differently. Uh, but what it leads me to is that baptism, water baptism, is significant. It's significant. It is not some little thing that we do. It's not just some, some thing, I, okay, i got to check off the next box on the list of Christian things I do. It's powerful. It's the work of God. It symbolizes the deepest things of who God is. Immersion in the Spirit. Being connected to the death and resurrection of Jesus. I mean, these are the deepest things of of the universe. Of the Son and the Spirit of God. And they're all tied up in the symbol of baptism. That's powerful. Like I said, I think these experiences Pentecostals talk about, I think they're legitimate. I think they're real. I've had it. I've had it in my own life. And I'm sure many of you also have in this room. <clears throat> and um, man, those, those moments are wonderful when you feel the Lord speak to you clearly, when He comes upon you, speak in tongues, whatever it may be. 
And there are deep changes that God, that He has wrought in our lives because we have an, a, an experience with Him. And I, I call that being filled with the Spirit. But Spirit baptism, I reserve that term for that initial indwelling, that initial experience of becoming a Christian. That's the Spirit baptism. That's the indwelling. But it gets confusing, I know, because so many different... So much different language is used. So much different vernacular is used by so many different people. But that's my explanation of how I understand the scriptures as it relates to baptism. And, and ultimately, I know, it's kind of an odd um, diversion that we got into here to just jump out of Genesis and do this. Um, but no, it's coming from a place of a father's heart. I love my babies, and, and they should be baptized because they're believers. And they should be baptized because of it. They should know at this young age the weight of the symbol they're undertaking by doing this. And that it, they were surrounded by people that loved them and sought their best, that wanted the best for them when they were baptized. And these people were, were rejoicing with them over the change of their life. That's what I want for them. And I, the other reason I wanted to tell you all this is because I, I hope, my prayer is, that we'll see this come to pass in this church one day. And I want you all to be prepared for it and to be praying for it and to be hoping for it. That one day this church will see people coming to Jesus and we're going to baptize them when they come to Jesus. That that will be a significant moment. That the power and weight of someone saying, I surrender to Jesus. And we're like, okay, are you ready to be baptized? And they're like, whoa, that seems like a very intense commitment. It's almost like another level of gatekeeping, isn't it? Well, how serious are you about this following Jesus? You ready to get in the water right now? Uh, I don't know. Oh, okay. Well, how serious are you then? I don't know. I, I'm just thinking through that right now. But if they're serious about Jesus, and baptism is the response, I want people to come to Jesus in our church, and I want to baptize them. And not just me, all of you. This baptism is not a right just for for the elders of the church or just for the pastor or whatever. We're all called to be baptizers. We can all baptize. We can all bring people into that right of the church. I really believe that. There's no indication on who's called to do it. Who's the specific person? It's an open ministry. Anyway, that's my hope for us is we'll be baptizing people, seeing them come to Jesus. And at that moment, we'll, we'll say this is the response. This is the response to Jesus. It's to be baptized in his name, in his Father's name, and in his Spirit's name. Okay? All right.